That's great. Um, but yeah, we're going to go into looking at this um, psalm that we've been doing the last five weeks. Has been, we've been going through Psalm 145, which is actually the last psalm of David in the book of Psalms, and the series has been called Worthy of Praise, and we've just been taking time basically to look at different aspects of who God is and what He's like and why He's worthy of praise. And we've been doing that, and, and each day um, we come and we sing about that as well. Um, and we, we gather to worship God and celebrate Him. Uh, some of the things we've looked at already in the psalm are praising God for His works, that He acts in history through creation and through salvation, and just for His greatness, which is unsearchable. Um, we praise Him for His character, especially that He's compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and rich in love. Uh, we talked about His kingdom and how He's a king who conquers through a cross. Last week was about his generosity, that he's given everything for us and became poor so that we could become rich. And, and this week, we're just going to sort of finish up and focus on his mercy and his justice and looking at how we can praise him and celebrate him. And like I said, we've already been doing that through song, um, but it's actually kind of a strange thing, again, that we do that each week. Like, we come together to celebrate our God. Like, not many people in our culture and our world do that, come and praise a God. Like, that's what we do. And it's not just that we do that because we should. We actually believe that that is what life is about. And, and we even sung that before. There was that bridge in one of the songs that said, this is what living looks like, this is what freedom feels like, this is what heaven sounds like when we're praising God. That praise is actually linked to life. Actually, life is found in God and celebrating Him and experiencing Him. This is um, what Leslie Newbigin says about uh, a church, that basically praise is a central thing to what it means to be the church or a community. He says this about the church, it will be a community of praise. That is perhaps its most distinctive character. The Christian congregation is a place where people find their true freedom, their true dignity, and their true equality in reverence to one who is worthy of all the praise we can offer. So it's not just that God is worthy, He is worthy, but it's also that that's actually what we're made for, to recognize that and celebrate that, and we actually find our life and our joy and our freedom as we celebrate and praise Him, particularly as we recognize that He is so much greater than us, bigger than us, more powerful than us, more wise than us, and actually we just get to enjoy living dependent and trusting and celebrating His greatness together. So basically we're going to go through and, and look at this last sort of few verses of Psalm 145, and again, just sort of think about why he's worthy of praise. So I might pray, and then we'll get started. Yeah, we just thank you, God, that you are Lord and, and God, and you've rescued us, and you've just called us to praise you and celebrate you with joy because you're so good. We just ask that that truth would fill our hearts today, uh, that you're worthy, um, that life is found in you. Lord, would you just put praise and, and joy on our lips and our tongues and um, just fill us afresh today. Just pray you'd speak through your word, Lord, and reveal yourself more and more. Just pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to start at Psalm 145, verse 17. So we've already gone through the other bits. This is verse 17. It says this, The Lord, again, Yahweh, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. Uh, I'll read the ESV as well, just on this. We'll just look at this one verse to start with. The ESV says, The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. And particularly these last few verses, the word all just keeps coming up again and again and again. It's like the emphasis, like he is righteous. It means he is just. He does, he's in right relationship. He, he is good in all his 
ways, always, consistently. And he's kind in all his works. The things that he does are kind and merciful. Now, this seems like probably like Christianity 101, but it's good to keep telling it again and again. Basically, the point is the Lord is good. God is good. And again, we know that, right? Like we hear that, we sing about it. But again, it's good to come back and remind ourselves that he is truly good in all his ways, in all he does. There's no darkness in him at all. Everything that he does is right and holy and pure. That's who he is. There's this verse in James as well that talks about him being the father of lights that does not change like shifting shadows. There's no darkness in God at all. He is light. He is good. All his acts are right. But sometimes it's hard to believe that, right? Or sometimes we maybe doubt that. Or sometimes we think, well, okay, but why is the world the way it is if he's so good and so forth? Or, or, or maybe there's something inside that say, yeah, I get that, but no, nah, still sort of not sure. Um, but he truly is good. That's a testimony of Scripture. The problem is not so much that he's not good. The problem is actually with us. Like we said last week, right? God is trustworthy. The problem is we don't believe it. We don't trust him. And we see right at the start of the story of Genesis, this is the problem as well, that God, God is good, but instead of trusting that and believing him, we decided to take the definition of goodness to ourselves. Uh, in Genesis 1, uh, God gave this command, or Genesis 2, it says, The Lord God took man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you'll certainly die. So the, God's plan and desire was, not, was that we would live trusting in his goodness, relying upon his definition of good, and, and then serving and living from that place, not taking for ourselves and redefining good and evil for ourselves and living apart from him. We know how the story went, that we didn't trust him. Adam and Eve took and from then on, we now redefine good and evil. We make sense of what we think is right, and we often say, well, God is wrong. <laughs> and the problem is with God, not with us. But the truth is, and the testimony of Scripture is, the opposite. God, God is the one who is right and good in everything. And if there's an issue, it's on our end. We're actually the ones who are in the wrong. This is how Josh Butler puts it. Our problem is not that we are good and God is evil. The gospel flips this illusion on its head. God is good and we are evil. Our healing begins with our repentant acknowledgement of this fact. Then we can fall into the arms of mercy that are wanting to receive us. God is good and if there's problems or issues or we think maybe he's not, it's not because he's not. It's because we have redefined good and evil or we have wrecked havoc on our world and therefore we don't trust and believe him. The problem is actually with us, not with him. There's this great um, story um, of a man named G.K. Chesterton who was responding to a newspaper article about, the newspaper article was called What's Wrong With The World and was trying to define and probably try and blame some other group or some other people about what's wrong with the world. And he famously responded with a letter to the, the newspaper. And he said this, Dear Sir, regarding your article, What's Wrong With The World? I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. That's it. <laughs> and quite profound that we kind of want to blame other people for the problems in the world, or perhaps God for the problems in the world, or perhaps politicians, or, or perhaps some other group that we disagree with. 
but he just went straight to the punch. And actually, no, the problem is all of us. It's actually humanity. Because the Lord is good. The problem is not with him. The problem is with us. Now, this doesn't, what I'm not saying is, well, therefore, like, just ignore any problems or issues that you're struggling with, with theology or, or, or things that you're confused about why God might do certain things. We're not saying to ignore that. We're saying that the, the, the standard is he is good. We need to start to make sense and trust his definition of good. And work, we can work through things. We can be honest with God. In the Psalms, people are very honest with God and, and express themselves to God. But we trust and rely upon his goodness. He is consistently righteous, good, just, faithful, and holy. The problem is not with him. It's with us. The amazing thing, though, is as we see in Scripture, this good God who made a good world generously didn't have to do that as an overflow of love and generosity, and humans who took instead of trusted and rebelled, yet he continues to show mercy. He's merciful to us who are the problem in the world and people who wreak havoc on the world. He's merciful and kind, particularly to any who turn to him at all. God is ready and willing and wanting people to come back to that place of trust and relationship with him. We see this again in the, rest, the next section in Psalm 145, 18 to 28. This says, again, David's writing this, this song of praise. He says, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him. It's this picture of God. God is close. Like when, when people do call out to him from a place of genuineness and, and truth, he, he is near that. He, he, he responds to that. When, when people desire him and fear him, he wants to satisfy those desires. He watches over and protect. He, he listens. He cares. He, he is merciful. So the Lord is good. We see in here that the Lord is full of mercy. He draws near even to people who have not trusted him or followed him. As soon as they turn, as soon as they trust, he is more than willing to show mercy and grace and love. He forgives. He is compassionate. This is what we talked about uh, earlier in this psalm, that God's default posture is of compassion and grace. Um, what we've been doing, actually, and, and that, that verse that I just mentioned, um, when we talked about his character, we, I said it's a quote from Exodus 34. And this story, it's a real foundational story around God's character when God reveals himself to Moses as the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, abounding and um, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And this, that, that, that passage gets requoted throughout the Bible a lot, and it actually gets quoted in Psalm 145. I thought we'd actually have a look at it today, because it's, it's kind of been framing a lot of this series that we've been going through. So you see, when, when God reveals himself to Moses, th this was how he revealed himself, that he's a God merciful, or compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, forgiving all types of sins. See, that is God's posture, right? That is his heart. That, that it's not just that he forgives because he has to. Like, like, he is forgiving. His posture is toward us and toward humanity. That he, His posture is to show grace and mercy and kindness and to forgive and to cover sin, um, 
this, the context of this, where this happens, when, when God reveals himself to Moses, the, the, I'll give you the really quick backstory is God, God rescues his people from Egypt um, through Moses, and they come out, and they go to this mountain, and they're making a covenant. And it's kind of like a marriage, in a sense, with God, that they're going to be loyal to him. That's what he wants, loyalty and faithfulness to him as their God, because he's the one true God. And they agree, and they say, yes, we're in. And then Moses goes up the mountain with God, and while he's away, they build another God. They build an image, and they start to worship this God and say, and, and, and they're doing the exact thing that God just asked them not to do, and they've just made this agreement. And that people make a parallel. It's kind of like, it's almost like a marriage ceremony, a wedding ceremony, and it's like the bride kissing one of the groomsmen, or, or it's like the, the, the bride committing adultery on the honeymoon. It's like they've just made this agreement, and, and this, this people just rejects it straight away. And, and this isn't the first time they've disobeyed it. There's been multiple times already, and God is rightly upset. He, he's very upset about this in the story. If he, 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 yeah, you can, you can read it in, in Exodus. Um, but Moses prays to Yahweh. He asks God to forgive them, and he does. He forgives them. They've done this thing that has upset him greatly, yet he shows grace and forgiveness. He is forgiving. Um, the Lord is merciful. We see it's, it's that he is good, right? We are not, but in our sin and our brokenness, he is merciful, and his heart is to forgive and to draw us back to himself. Because um, sometimes we might, that, that's, that's a vulnerable place to be there, right? Like to, to recognize that actually we are guilty. Like, like sometimes maybe we, we sin or do wrong, and we can kind of go different ways. Like maybe we sort of just downplay it and say, well, it's, it's not really a big deal. Um, other people are doing it. It's, it's not a problem. Like I just do my best, but I just made up some mistakes or something like that. Or we compare ourselves to other people or, or we minimize or we think, well, actually, I'll just do better and I'll work harder. But, but actually, if, if we're guilty, we're guilty. Like, like that's it. And, and if we're stuffed up, we're stuffed up. That's it. Like we can't work our way back to God. Um, if we've broken faith with him, that's it. The only hope is his mercy. And the good news is that he is merciful, and he forgives. And, and that's a gift, right? Like, you can't expect someone to forgive you. Like, like, he doesn't have to forgive. Like, to forgive is to give a gift of, of no merit. There's no, you don't deserve forgiveness. It's just that you get to receive it as a gift. And that can be scary to come to that place of like, well, actually, all that we have before God is his mercy. But the good news is that he is merciful, he was merciful to the, the Israelites in that story, in multiple stories. He's merciful to us. And if we just cry out to him, if we turn to him, we ask for forgiveness, he is right there. That's his heart posture. Yet at the same time, we said, right, he is good. He's righteous in all his ways. We are not. He is merciful toward us. At the same time, he doesn't want us to misunderstand that, that he thinks sin's okay. Because he is still just. And he will deal with sin. He doesn't actually just let people off the hook for their sin. Um, as we've been going through this Psalm 145, you've probably been noticing this, this pretty intense verse right at the end of the second half of verse 20. So it says, right, God is near to those who call on him. Um, he protects those who love him. In verse 20, verse B, it says, and all the wicked he will destroy. It's like all these really nice things about God. And then it's like, whoa, okay, that's pretty intense. We're going to look at some more intense verses, so don't worry. (laughs) 
But, but there, there's verses, right, that talk about God's response to sin and people who partic- persist in sin and reject him. He, he will deal with sin because the Lord is just. He's merciful, but he is just. And this is a really good thing. At the moment, particularly, we see around the world, a lot of people, or people everywhere, who want justice, right? Like, we want justice in the world. Justice means that things are put right, that things that are unjust, where there's injustice, it's dealt with and it's fixed. That's, that's what justice looks like. Evil is done away with. Injustice is dealt with. That's the job of a judge, right? A good judge will make things right. And God is a judge, and he's a good judge. And one day he will make everything Right, and the Psalms actually rejoice in this, particularly Psalm, some of the Psalms around the 90s, around like 96, 98. There's these songs of celebration that God is coming to judge the earth. And, and sometimes, right, we think, well, that sounds really scary. Like, and, and it probably is in some ways, but in, in other ways, the Psalms celebrate this as a joyful thing because he's going to set everything right. He's going to deal with evil. He's going to deal with injustice. One day, there will be no sin. There will be no death. There will be no injustice. There will be equality. There will be freedom. There will be joy forever on the earth because God is just. We see this similarly in the second half of the Exodus 34 passage. Like like we've talked about, God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger. He's forgiving iniquity and sin. But then it also, the second half reflects his justice. The second half in verse 7 of Exodus 34 says, But, so God is compassionate and gracious, He's forgiving, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And then you're thinking, okay, this is why sometimes it's hard, right? Like, like that seems like a strange thing, right? God is all these good things. But now it seems like God is punishing children for their parents' sin, and like that seems intense, and like, like how do we make sense of that? Now, the first thing, right, is remember, we start from this place of, well, God is good. So what God is saying is good. Like, he's just, and he's right, and he's good. But we need to make sense of what this means. And this is a big passage we could talk about a lot, but just a few comments. What it does not mean is that God punishes children for their parents' sin. There's other verses that are very clear that that's not the case. You could look at a couple, but one, for example, is um, Deuteronomy 24. says it very clearly. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. So that's in Deuteronomy. That's, that's pretty clear. There's also a quote of the Exodus 34 passage in Jeremiah 32 which quotes it, but then talks about each person being held accountable for their own sin, which is, we, we sort of start to interpret it through these other passages. The point, right, that there's some implications though, right? So one implication is, in general, like, children do suffer because of parents' sin. So when parents sin, it does affect the kids, right? That's not God punishing them, but there is an effect. It's also true that often children continue parents' sin. We pass on good things, but unfortunately, often bad things are passed on as well and can be for generations. But the real point is that God will hold each generation accountable for their own sin. God will deal with sin in each and every generation. Um, it's interesting, this, this phrase, the third and the fourth, right? it says that God, um, we'll go back to that one, see if that will work. Um, 
yeah, he will, so visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. In the Hebrew, it actually just says third and fourth. It doesn't say generation. Now, it means generation, but third and fourth is actually an idiom. It's like three things or four things. It's this, it's this turn of phrase that just means however many. Like God will punish and deal with sin in however many generations, sin, effectively. Like he will hold each generation accountable for their sin. Um, is, is, is the point, right? So it's kind of like God is going to forgive these, this group of people who have just effectively broken faith with him. They've just had this marriage relationship and they've broken faith. God generously forgives them. He says because he's a forgiving God, but he wants each generation to know that they're still going to be held accountable. They shouldn't say, oh, God forgave my parents, so it doesn't really matter. It, it won't be a problem. Like, it's like, no, God, God is just and he will hold each generation accountable, you can't blame parents and say, oh, well, my parents made me like this. It's like, no, God will hold each generation accountable. Each person will be held accountable for their own sin. So there's a tension here that God is merciful and his heart is to forgive and he's compassionate and gracious, yet God is just. And in the same way, right, like in, in our world, like if, if someone committed a horrible offense and the judge just said, oh, I just forgive you, it's fine, don't worry about it, like... Like, that would not be a good judge. Like, that, that, that would lead to terrible things in the world. A good judge deals with evil and sin and, and problems. Like, we can still forgive them personally, but there's still consequences. So there's this tension, right? And it's interesting, this tension, because in, the, um, in this passage, there's a contrast as well. There's a tension between God's mercy and between God's justice, and there's a contrast. The contrast is that he's keeping love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and sin for thousands. But then he says that he's, he's dealing, holding accountable to the third and the fourth. There's this contrast of third and fourth with thousands. And what we can see is there's a tension of God's justice and his mercy, but the scales are massively tipped towards mercy. His default posture is mercy, forgiveness, grace, yet he is still just, right? He won't clear the guilty, is what he said, but the scales are tipped towards mercy. This creates a problem in some ways for God and for us because we are all guilty, like we're saying, right? Like, like we've all broken faith with God. We've all put other gods on our hearts um, and worshipped other gods instead of him. We've all broken his laws, yet he is merciful. He can't ignore the sin, but he wants to forgive. So how can he be both just and merciful? And we see this ultimately leads us to the cross and leads him to the cross. Because on the cross, sin is dealt with. He is just, yet there's a way now for forgiveness and for his mercy to be shown. See this explained really well by Paul in Romans 3, uh, 25 to 26. It's a few sort of theological words, but hopefully the idea sort of comes across it. It says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, his patience, remember he said he's slow to anger, he's patient. In his patience, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just 
and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Effectively, the cross is the way that God can show mercy while still being just. The Lord's mercy and justice meet at the cross. And, and there's a whole lot, again, we could talk about that and unpack what that means and what that, that looks like. Um, but, but it's that he's found a way to deal with sin, but show mercy and grace to us. And it's not that like, he just decides to punish an innocent person, right? Like, Jesus is Yahweh. Like, God comes as a man. He comes himself. He takes it on himself. The Father and the Son are working together in the cross. God decides to bear it, to bear the punishment, to bear the consequence, so that sin is dealt with, justice is satisfied, yet he can show mercy. John Mark Comer on this said this, in this moment, we see more clearly than ever before what Yahweh is like. The reconciliation of God's mercy and justice in the death of Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's character. The tension is finally resolved. It's in God's nature to show mercy and forgive, but it's also in his nature to deal with sin. And these two parts of God's person, seemingly at odds for so many years, finally come together on the cross in beautiful harmony. So he said, he is good in all his ways. And this shows how just how good he is, right? And we are not. We, we fall short. We redefine good and evil. We break faith. Yet he is merciful. Yet he won't overlook sin. So he deals with sin himself. He takes it on himself. And one day he will deal with it forever. For those who trust him, there's mercy and forgiveness. So we've been talking about praising him because he's worthy. We praise him because of his acts, his power and greatness in creation. We've praised him for his character, for his compassion and his grace, that he is patient, slow to anger, rich in love. We've praised him for his kingdom that endures forever, that he's a king who conquers through a cross. We've praised him for his generosity that is demonstrated in giving himself for us, that he even becomes poor for us so we can be rich. We praise him today for his mercy and his justice his heart to forgive yet not overlook sin, which led him to take our place in order to be both just and merciful. So as we finish today, we're going to sing and praise God as we're sort of saying the whole point of these messages, this series has been to give us fuel to worship God, give us reason and to, to see how he's worthy. And as this Psalm 145 finishes again, the last words of David in the Psalm, book of Psalms, my mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. So if you'd like to stand with me and let's pray and then let's praise. We just say, Lord, you are great and greatly to be praised. You are worthy. You are good. You are merciful. You are just. You enter the cross, yet you defeated death and you're alive. You show us mercy. You forgive us. 
Lord, we fall short every day and you bear with us. You loved us first and we get to love you. We just ask for you. You'll be pleased, Lord, even with our humble offering of praise and worship. Just fill us to live our whole lives in praise, declaring your greatness and your goodness. And Yeah, would you just be our joy and our delight at all times? And Lord, would it be true of us to say that, that we'll praise your name forever and ever? Just praise us. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.